Welcome to Faithful Economy, a podcast of the Association of Christian Economists. We host conversations about important economic and moral questions. I'm your host, Steve McMullen of Hope College. In this final episode of 2020, we decided to do a retrospective episode about the best recently published books that we had read this year. So if you are the type of person who flips to the book review section of your favorite journal or magazine, this is the episode for you. For this conversation, I'm joined by Jamin Hubner, a friend and scholar who regularly writes book reviews for Faith and Economics, and appears to have spent every free moment in 2020 reading scholarly books. Over the course of our conversation, we take turns recommending books and talking about the big ideas in them. We cover over a dozen books in the hour, but don't worry about taking notes. Every book we mention is available in the show notes with links. In choosing which books to mention here, I decided to rule out those books that were already featured in the show. That means that Bruce Wittick, Greg Forster, Victor Klar, Art Carden, and Deidre McCloskey's fine work is all ruled out, not because their books are not great, but because you can learn about them simply by tuning into past episodes. I wanted to have this conversation with Jamin not just because he is a voracious reader. He is also an accomplished book reviewer. Despite the fact that he is probably younger than me by a bit, he's written over 70 published book reviews. Perhaps more importantly, he also comes from a different ideological position than I do, and reads different books. You will see in our conversation, sometimes he sounds like a libertarian and sometimes like a socialist. And his book choices reflect his decision to research socialism and historic social democratic movements. When I asked how I should label his ideological position, he said that I should probably call him an anarcho-socialist or modified anarcho-syndicalist. I'll let you Google those terms to figure him out. Jamin's background is interesting too. He has graduate degrees in religion, theology, and applied economics. He has written multiple books, and he has been, among other things, a professor of Christian studies, business, and economics, and the founding editor of the Christian Libertarian Review. Today, he is a research fellow at the Center for Faith and Human Flourishing at LCC International University, and is teaching at the University of the People and Western Dakota Technical Institute. Welcome, Jamin. Thanks so much for being willing to come on the show and have this conversation with me. I have had a whole bunch of time to read because I've been on sabbatical, and that's allowed me you know, to dig into a whole bunch of books related to my writing projects, uh, some of which we'll hear about here today. But it's also meant that I've just been able to do the kind of reading that I always want to do as an academic, but haven't been able to. You, on the other hand, it appears to me, are an insane reader just normally. Is that fair? Well, the last two years has opened up more time for that. So, I mean, I have always read a lot, but there's been some, yeah, some time. All right. Well, yeah, and and I think over the the COVID period, there's a lot of folks that are finding themselves with a lower opportunity cost, perhaps, and and digging into more books. But I think you'll be a great person to talk to about this stuff here today, in part because I don't think we're reading the same stuff, and that will give us a chance to recommend a variety of books. Here's the way I'd like to proceed. I think we'll go back and forth. I think I have six to eight, depending on how you count books that I'd like to talk about, at least briefly. I think you have a list as well. All told, we're mostly going to focus on nonfiction, mostly academic, uh, partly because that's what our, our listeners are just begging for. I know is more information about serious academic volumes, uh, but a couple of mine are, are trade volumes and are a little bit easier reads. And then when we're done, I will, Jamin, I'm warning you now, ask you to pick 
one book that is your absolute favorite read from all of 2020. All right, there's your fair warning. Okay, well, I need to issue a couple warnings too. Listeners need to be aware that this is not the best books that I've read in 2020. These are the best books I've read in 2020 that were published in the last couple of years. So this is a very different selection than otherwise. And also, I, I'd be curious to know a little bit about your methodology being on sabbatical. Like, what, what do you grab for first? And what is, I mean, just very briefly, how did you decide, you know, do you just see a magazine and say, I, I want to read this? Or is it recommendations? Or how do you make that process? Well, uh, my sabbatical project has been to write uh, a book with Jim Otteson about redistribution of wealth. It's a debate. I knew coming into the sabbatical that I was arguing in favor of redistribution. I knew also that I'm coming into a debate with a philosopher about a question that is both a public policy question, but also a philosophical question. And so I started with a real anxiety that I needed to know the philosophical literature about redistribution. One of the first books I went to, one of the first things I did is start looking around to things people have written recently sort of broadly on this topic that would kind of get me up to speed. And so one of those books is one that I'll recommend, and that's uh, Why Does Inequality Matter by T.M. Scanlon. But then from there on, I picked a lot of books over sabbatical that I wanted to read because I knew the argument was interesting, and it, either because it would challenge what I was trying to argue, and thus I'd have a good sense of the literature from that side, or because I thought that there would be really high quality evidence or arguments related to the kind of stuff I was writing. So my sabbatical was, I mean, it was a very much a working sabbatical, and you'll see that in the books that I choose uh, by and large. And it really was the books that came up in my research that were particularly good. How about you? Yeah, that makes sense. Well, it's kind of odd um, as I thought about this because I looked at the stack and I'm like, you know, this is kind of weird. This, <laughs> I mean, people are going to come away and be like, what? Is this uh, reflect your normal diet? And it's like, no, not really. I'm kind of one of those people who is sensitive towards my own comfort level. And so when I find myself reading things that I always agree with or things that I'm familiar with, I want to get out of that. And I, it, I, I discovered that, you know, after teaching economics for a couple of years, my entire understanding of socialism was by people who aren't socialists. <laughs> and that's, that's a disgrace to any scholar to depend on critics for your knowledge of something and not let people voice their own opinions and understand them from where they're at. So, and this would be nice and uncomfortable coming from a pretty anti-state ideology the last uh, five years. So I read as much socialism and Marxism as I could in the last year and a half. Some of that was uh, very fascinating. And there a number of these books are in that tradition that I thought were really good, very informative quality works. Others were very just naive and, and not worth reading. But uh, so that's kind of been my thing over the last couple of years. And when you, when you do that, when you listen to people you've been trained to disagree with or you do disagree with, it's just uh, a totally different experience to, to sit and listen. So that sort of, that shaped a lot of my, not all of them, but a, a number of them. I, you know, and I've been, I've been reading lots and lots of libertarians actually over the last year, not, maybe not for exactly the same reason, but because in prepping for a debate with Jim Otteson, who, who leans libertarian, um, although I'm not sure if he adopts that label or not, I wanted to know that I knew what I was talking about. And so I was trying to find some of the best uh, folks uh, writing on, on these issues. 
Um, but but I will say just as a note before we get started here that that my experience has always been that the most exciting things to read are things that where someone is writing something that you either start out or or even end disagreeing with really substantially or someone coming from such a radically different perspective that you're forced to learn a lot while you're reading. Mm-hmm. And so um, so I endorse your your method here wholeheartedly. It's been very useful to me over the years. But uh, before we go any further, I'll give you the, the position of privilege to choose the first book to recommend. So give us the title the author and give us a short description of why this book makes your list for our book podcast. Okay. Well, just so everybody knows, there's, there's no priority here. This is just a stack I threw together. Oh, well, that physical stack here, and I'm just going to go through them in that order. First is uh, Collusion by Nomi Prinz. Prinz is kind of a former Wall Street executive financial analyst, has her PhD in data analytics, and has been part of that circle for a long time. And quite a quite a subtitle, How Central Bankers Rigged the World. And so... I mean, we hear a lot about the financial sector these days. We hear a lot about central banks, and especially since the Great Recession, attention is there. I chose this because of its importance in that respect, but it it's also just documents how central banks have interacted since the Great Recession and during the Great Recession of 07 and 08. And you just get this feeling, and that's one of her theses, is that not only is the system designed more than ever since then to to really create inequities and control power at the top of this undemocratic system. But you get the feeling and that each chapter is like a different central bank, Bank of Mexico, Bank of you know, the European Central Bank, Japan, et cetera, that there, there is no plan <laughs> per se. Like people, they're making these things up as they go along as far as what to do. And in some ways you have to, because there's a lot of unprecedented territory in the global economy, but, but that's not what, that's not the narrative that you get. And uh, there's just so much trust involved in, in these sectors that when you come to realize how things actually work, how the sausage is made, so to speak, it's, it is a little frightening. It's meant to be, doesn't really end on a happy note. All right, I'll let my I'll allow myself one question per book. I told myself that I, <laughs> I would ask you. So my question for you on this one, not having read it, I, I don't know a ton about monetary policy except, of course, what I need to be a card-carrying economist. Is the implication of her writing that uh, central banking would be would be more just or or better if central bankers followed a very strict Taylor rule and used less discretion? Is that the end game, or is it actually just well like the monetary system as a whole? She doesn't go that far. She doesn't, I mean, I would go, I would question the legitimacy of central banks to begin with in that type of monopoly. She wouldn't, but uh, she she's really, really critical of just the the conjured money in her language of the the expansionary policy and the, the no limits to quantitative okay. easing. So I think, yeah, she would definitely point in a direction of more so-called monetary policy discipline. Yeah. And but it it, it was a little disappointing. One thing was she kind of geeks out and uh, which is, you know, always kind of cool when scholars do that, but it wasn't as interesting to me like how the specific amounts and the times and the dates of when these banks did all these transfers and such. But she doesn't really provide a positive way forward only to say what's going on is not the way it should continue. Yeah. All right. 
I'm going to take my turn. Do it. And I'm going to start off also with sort of a, a core economics book that will probably be familiar to uh, certainly folks who've been reading Faith and Economics uh, and listening to this podcast perhaps already. And that's Mary Hirschfeld's Aquinas in the Market Toward a Humane Economy. Now, I'm reaching back to, I think, 2018 when this one was published. We did just publish in Faith and Economics about a year ago a, a symposium on her book. Where, uh, where we had three folks write responses to the book, and then she responded to those three reviewers. I want to start with Mary's book, and I, I can't give it the credit it's due because I've read only parts of it seriously and, and skimmed other parts, and I really want to give the entire thing more attention. Uh, but she does as, um, as good a job as I, as I have ever seen of pulling theology and economics in a really serious, incredible way together into one volume. And kind of the genius of it is, is she, she is an Aquinas scholar and Aquinas starts his whole theological system or, or one of the core assumptions that he makes, she writes, is that human beings, our purpose is to pursue happiness and happiness is, is friendship with God. And that allows her to parallel this, this pursuit of this true happiness with the kind of um, utility maximizing pursuit of happiness that's at the basis of microeconomic theory. And then in parallel, consider what an Aquinas-inspired or Thomistic economics would look like, asking some of the same questions and implications as what we get from economic theory. And she's, she considers um, consumer action pretty seriously, but also uh, just broadly, what is the purpose of the economy? How does the economy function? What do ethics look like? What's the role of virtue? And these are just, these are just the hardest questions for folks doing economics and theology. And she just does a really nice job of attacking them in a really credible and serious way. Here's a question for you. Um, how does this book fit in with the literature on Aquinas and economics? Because I feel like as soon as people put together theology and economics, they're just like, oh yeah, let's talk about Aquinas and uh, usury and interest and all that stuff in the medieval period. And not that that's not interesting to me, but I sometimes get the impression that it's just over-researched or over-discussed a little bit compared to other issues. I mean, how how was your feeling there? I think that's that that's an, that's a fair point. So there is a lot of literature on the scholastics because the scholastics took a particular approach to economic thinking, and they wrote a lot, and they wrote in a very theologically sort of rich way about economic issues. And it's very different than the way economists write now, and then they come to very different conclusions. Uh, Mary doesn't take the I'm going to attack a hard question. And, and start with sort of the received wisdom from economics and the received wisdom from, from Aquinas or the other scholastics and compare them. She, she takes, what, what I think makes this book particularly useful is that she takes a step back to think about Thomism as a, as a systematic theology and approach and how you would approach the whole sort of realm of economic thinking from that perspective, as opposed to, to going to the specific questions that the scholastics were asking. And, and I think there is going to be some overlap between her thinking and what a lots of other great Catholic scholars have done over the years. But it, in, and I am not, um, I'm not well-versed enough to know at all that has come before. But in my reading, what she's done is just a really good standout job at taking this sort of reoccurring task we have of trying to integrate economics and theology. And she's really brought us a few steps forward. And that's, that's as, as, probably as good a thing as I can say about a book doing this kind of hard interdisciplinary stuff. Sure. Okay. 
Okay, should we move on to another one? You're up. We have a big stack, so I guess we'll just keep moving. This is by Yanis Varoufakis. That is a Greek name. Talking to my daughter about the economy or how capitalism works and how it fails. <laughs> now, this is he's the former Greek, former finance minister of Greece. And I've watched some videos, seems to be an intriguing person. He looks astonishingly like Voldemort in uh, Harry Potter. You can see here. He, yeah, he like really does. Okay, for our listeners, there will be no video, but I can tell you he's right. Okay, so what's the Slytherin economics here then? What, what does Voldemort have to teach us? Well, this is obviously a popular volume, and and you know he's like, well, if I wanted to explain to my teenage uh, daughter like how the economy works, why we're having these debates about austerity in Greece and how the financial system works, what would it look like? So it's a very sweeping account. I mean, he starts with ancient economy and writing and sort of uh, goes through that and explains markets and then how inequality developed. I, I thought his discussion of the relationship to profit and debt emerging out of the uh, medieval uh, transition to capitalism was was interesting to me. I haven't heard anyone quite discuss things like that. He you know, draws a distinction between different types of goods and, of course, really drives home this 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 criticism against the commodification of everything talks about experiential goods versus exchange goods but then the banking stuff is very fascinating too and it's just super readable it's really good it's one of those books that i would recommend to kind of anyone that just wants a fascinating short well-written discussion about economics in general i mean it would almost be a good book for a, an undergrad course an intro course it's it's not technical so, and he has some interesting ideas, you know, he, he says, like, you, there has to be public forgiveness of debt for, for the, you know, financial system to keep going at all. There's just a, um, a question and a push towards a democracy and decentralization of decision making when it comes to the economy. So that overlaps with a lot of areas. And that's an interesting philosophy and approach when, when considering how this wide variety of authors are all sort of pointing in the same direction. Yeah, it was very enjoyable read. And I mean, you know, he talks about why cigarettes became currency in POW prisons and um, just a lot of interesting things. And, and you'd recommend that to folks who are not academics? It sounds like it's a, it's a very personal book. Yes, this is a popular work. A couple of in my selection ended up being that. That's just what happened. A lot of the, the academic books I read on economics this year were just kind of boring and I just wouldn't recommend them, which doesn't always happen. I try to stick with the good ones, but you never know until you, you read it. Well, my second book is, is probably going to be my the book that changed my thinking the most of, of any book that I've read over the last year. And I've written about it a number of times. So if there's anyone out there who's actually slavishly following everything that I write on various blogs and whatnot, they already know what I'm going to talk about. And that is uh, Ezra Klein's book, Why We're Polarized. So Ezra Klein, for listeners who don't know who this person is, who's far more famous than either of us here on the show, Ezra is one of the co-founders of Vox. He's a, he's a journalist, has been for years. He's one of the original bloggers that kind of came up in this sort of new media. He founded Vox, and now he has recently moved to the New York Times. And Ezra has made a project of the, over the last few years of researching identity politics Oh, and he's he's the host of one of the most popular podcasts out there, uh, the Ezra Klein Show. And his his look his 
his long study of identity politics became a book about polarization. And what's wonderful about Klein's book is, is that he tells a story about polarization that doesn't try to assign blame to people. So he's not attacking Newt Gingrich here. He's not saying these folks did this thing wrong and it resulted in this, this bad or this, um, this, this really toxic political culture. What he's doing is he's trying to tell a story of the kind of political institutions and forces that resulted in what we now all recognize, I think, as a, as a pretty toxic political culture and that, that we use the term polarization to label. And I think the thing that came away most, most poignantly for me from his book was not just the history and just the loads of social science that he pulls on from lots of different fields, but he makes a very good case that we've all become uh, much more engaged in identity politics today than we might have been 20 years ago. And by identity politics, that means that politics for more and more people is about protecting uh, their identity or, or who they think they are and who they identify as their people. And so both on the right and the left, folks can look at the other side of the aisle and feel like the folks on the other side of the political aisle are not just disagreeing with me about policy, but they're against Christianity or they're against white people or they're against black people or uh, they're against people in the suburbs. It's what he calls a mega identity so that our religious identity, our occupation, our geography, all of these things start to align so that they're all pointed in the same political direction. And that makes it very, very difficult for us to see humanity in folks on the other side or relate to them or imagine sort of straddling the fence. And this raises the temperature in politics for everyone. It makes it really hard for elections to swing one way or the other. And, and it makes it very hard for us to talk to people we disagree with. So did you did you see a social dilemma? I have not seen that yet. Yeah, I ditched Netflix for Disney Plus in there. Disney? Yeah, Star Wars. They're, they're still around? Oh my gosh. Uh, okay, well. Uh, this is clearly a conversation we need to have at another time. Yeah, we'll we'll table that one. Um, so yeah, it's really good. I I thought, uh, and it was about how social media is responsible for the type of polarization that we see in culture today. And it's it, it really is one of those things that you wonder what life would look like if this system wasn't in place. Yeah, what would our conversations look like at Christmas time and and whatnot. So do you see this uh, Klein as, tr as, as another one of those attempts to identify the basic issues and then diffuse, hopefully? That's, that's interesting, yeah. So he does mention social media and some other things. Um, and certainly, you know, like the, the mass media market itself has become more polarized and more partisan as well. And, and there's some other things as well. There's demographic changes. And he points to these in a, in a lot of different things. And, and he tells a story with, you know, with 10 causes, not just one. And the, actually the most disappointing part of the book, and he admits this, is that he doesn't really have a solution. He offers some solutions for how to make government run more smoothly uh, and more effectively given the polarized climate we find ourselves in. But he doesn't have a way of fixing the, the polarization and the sort of extreme identity politics that we've, certainly that we've seen over the last four years. I mean, the amount of actual policy debate in the last presidential election was, was minimal. And so, no, I mean, he doesn't, 
unfortunately, we, we don't have a way forward. I think David French might do a little bit more in his book on polarization. Just to drop a book in here that I'm not actually going to uh, add to my list because there's too many, but but I don't think Klein does. Okay, this next book, I mean, a couple of these are not quite in the economics realm. They're more in the Christian faith realm. That's fair. It's, um, it's faithful economy, right? We, we, do, that's right? we do all of the above. Yes. I read a book called Love Anyway by Jeremy Courtney and mm-hmm. published by Zondervan. It's a pretty riveting book. It's an interesting story about a young guy and um, his wife who were wanted to be missionaries to Muslims in the Middle East. So they went to Turkey and then everything kind of fell apart as it often does in a, um, a very, coming from a very strict fundamentalist background. So he abandoned that uh, in favor of just trying to be like Christ. So there's kind of some overtones of David Gushy's still Christian following Jesus out of evangelicalism. But just a lot of fascinating stories about war, about living in Iraq, about dealing with how things look from the ground, you know, in contrast to popular media and what Christians are told about what's happening in the Middle East and what Muslims are like, etc. So he founded the Preemptive Love Coalition, which is a nonprofit for war refugees primarily. And I've prioritized that in some of my giving and, and stuff and also of buying products because they, uh, they, they set up businesses for war refugees as well, which is, uh, I think, really great to. Yeah. Uh, so it's, it's, it has an entrepreneurial bent to it. It's just a wild story. I can't believe the guy is still alive, given how many. I mean, like, it's not an exaggeration. Like he was in the war zone, like just bodies everywhere. So, yeah, it's great. So it's a it's an exciting, inspiring read, but it also maybe gives people a little bit of a sense of how you take a really terrible world and make it a better place. Yeah, and really putting into action, like what actually happens when you follow the greatest commandment, when you follow the golden rule, and the amazing things what this can actually do to society. It's really the only thing that can provide stability and restoration to war-torn communities and generational violence. And the focus on on building uh, economic structures is 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 just pertinent too. And I think we just we have to be aware as Americans about the type of destruction that we fund hmm. uh, through taxation and be willing to uh, to humble ourselves and and try to you know. <laughs> mitigate that as much as it's possible. That's fair. I'm going to I'm going to use the wild amount of raw power I have as podcast host and I'm going to recommend two books at once. Oh my goodness. Are you serious? Hold on to your seats people. <laughs> so I like I like to actually to talk about these two books together. In my reading about inequality and redistribution and and poverty and these kinds of things, I um, I came to particularly value the books by public policy scholars who were able to draw together huge bodies of evidence about lots and lots of different programs, what's working, what isn't working, uh, but also do so in a kind of coherent way that tells a story. And so I have two, the two best that I found this year, at least, that do that kind of thing. One that leans pretty conservative and one on the left, both very kind of technocratic policy detail sort of oriented, although 
Um, the first is, is Michael Tanner's The Inclusive Economy. Tanner is at the Cato Institute. And uh, so you, you might guess that this leans uh, somewhat free market, and it does. And yet he takes very seriously the idea that we have to we have to pay attention to the way we structure the economy. We don't we won't naturally, without paying attention to it, necessarily end up with a system in which people have social mobility and economic opportunity. And it won't surprise folks. Again, he's coming from the Cato Institute. He argues that oftentimes government regulation is going to get in the way of people having the opportunity to to start businesses and to succeed at, when they have good creative ideas and the willingness to work hard. The what I liked about the book is that it didn't feel to me like it was like it was an ideological libertarian argument per se. So there's plenty of great arguments about libertarian philosophy. This one was okay. We care about free markets. We care about economic freedom and political freedom. Let's get into the details. What could we actually do to make this place better? All right. And this is and and so for folks who who haven't ever read a kind of libertarian leaning public policy expert talk seriously about creating economic opportunity, I'd say go read Michael Tanner, read The Inclusive Economy. It's a very serious book with lots of really great suggestions. The flip side to that, I think, is Heather Boucher's Unbound how inequality constricts our economy and what we can do about it. She's also an established public policy scholar from the think tank world. Um, she's recently made some news because she's a she's a, a Joe Biden advisor. She might be taking a job in the administration. I haven't paid super close attention. But she's also taken lots and lots of great evidence that we have about different programs, uh, what works in education, what works in healthcare, what works in, in terms of safety net programs. And she's pulled it together to, to create a pretty good case, uh, in, my, in my view, that the kind of inequality that we've come to take for granted over the last uh, 20 or 30 years is not just problematic if you don't like inequality. It's also problematic for other reasons. That is, it has bad consequences. And the inequality on its own, the way it's structured in the US economy, it actually limits people's opportunity to do the things that we think people should be able to do. And so she says, hey, this inequality has consequences for schooling and for health and for entrepreneurship and for, um, for basic civic participation. And if we, if we engage in these kinds of things that we know work, we'll get a whole bunch of positive results that aren't just a more equal society, but also as a society that has more social mobility that has a stronger economy and lower unemployment and all of these other things that you might want for just, just in terms of productivity. So she, she's writing a kind of have your cake and eat it to technocratic book for the center left. And that is candy for me, basically, because that's, it, it, that's loosely what, I, what I'm trying to write in, in the debate with Jim Honest. Yeah, well, it's funny because I've had a transformation in my thought too in the last couple of years on that subject, you know, for a, a number of years, Inequality to me was just like this is this is always going to be the case. Uh, this is the natural outcome of different people, different societies and structures. And as long as everybody's sort of moving up a little bit, it's no big what the gap is. You know, as if if there's more billionaires and you know, so what? As long as poor people are moving up a little bit too, you know, because it's not the the pie slice fallacy or, or the zero sum game fallacy, you know, everybody right. sort of went. What I didn't under realize and I eventually came to understand was that concentrations of wealth and, and that disparity is 
basically synonymous with concentrations of power and power differentials. And I think that is where you have a lot of hazards, a lot of potential for corruption and of course for coercion and ultimately some kind of control of one group of people over another. So it's not just we want to achieve perfect equality. It's not just that we want everybody to win. The issue is, well, back to Lord Acton, right? Is that power corrupts and that's not just politically, that's economically as well. Yeah, and I and I think what's what's particularly useful is for us to pay to pay very close attention to some of the specifics, right? It's it's worth digging into the details which is why I like reading public policy scholars and philosophers together, is that it's worth knowing the details of law and policy in order to really be able to say something about what justice looks like. It's, it's not enough merely to have um, a well-worked-out idea of what distributive justice uh, looks like. Uh, you also have to pay attention to some of the details of housing policy sometimes. And, um, and so I find, like I mentioned, I said, Michael Tanner is the book to read if you've never read a thoughtful libertarian public policy scholar. Uh, Heather Boucher is the, is the book to read that's come out recently. If you, if you can't imagine someone doing a really good job, a really careful job with economic evidence about the welfare state and social safety net, making the case that the economy would le- legitimately be stronger if we did some more investment in some of the stuff. Have you have you read any James Galbraith? I have, but it's been a while. Because like, he, isn't he, I mean, he's like the inequality guy, right? I mean, he's studied it more than almost anybody in my understanding. He hasn't made my reading list uh, in the last two years. I mean, like everybody, everybody's writing about inequality these days. Yeah, I know. It's true. It's oversaturated. Yeah, it's because I think I saw when we were in Boulder at a bookstore, he has... The, uh, the Easton, you know, those really fancy leather bound books, Easton Press. I think he, one, of the, one of his books actually is, uh, is published by them, which is sort of surprising. It's like, oh, maybe I should, I should read this person. But okay, uh, I guess it's my turn. Um, yes. So Understanding Socialism by Richard D. Wolf. Okay. Richard Wolf is kind of today's premier. Marxist socialist economist. He is on, he's produced a huge amount of material videos. He did that debate with the Soho forum or whatever. I, I didn't watch all of it, but I was first, first encountered Richard Wolf in his 2011 book on Occupy the Economy. I didn't really like it, but this was uh, actually, I've read a number of, of uh, introductions and in popular books for socialism, but this, this is the best that I've ever found. Like if if you want to know what socialism is by a socialist, this is probably the best book you could read. It's it's short. It's very readable. And Wolf is very, very knowledgeable and uh, thoughtful. And he's, you know, I've read Michael Harrington's book, Socialism, and that was a classic back in 1987 or 9 or whatever. This is smaller and even better than that in terms of, I, I think, providing concrete ways forward. And so he, he looks at all the different 20th century socialisms and the different meanings. And really, I, I had to read this book, Steve, because two of my favorite Christian prophets, Cornel West and Chris Hedges, are endorsed the book. So it's like, well, I have to read it now, you know, so I, I must be missing something and I don't regret it. Today, he, he sort of frames things in terms of three major streams. You have the collectivist status stream of thought. Then you have the democratic socialist, you know, the Scandinavian Nordic type arrangements, uh, that stream. And then you have the 
cooperative movement. The first two assume the legitimacy of the state and work to achieve political power, control of the state to enact some kind of improvement over capitalism. That that's that like if there's one premise about socialism, it's that capitalism is not the best or the greatest and that we can do better. Like that's the fundamental thing. The third is what he promotes. And because, and for a number of reasons, and of course I'm writing an article for faith and economics on the subject, and I'll be trying to insert a few of these quotes into there. You can do cooperative governments. You can do democracy at the workplace which is a, the ultimate form of socialism. That's the way it was all the way back in 18... The term socialism was coined in 1827 in the cooperative magazine. So th- there's always been this tight, tight relationship between um, worker-owned firms and that whole philosophy. And, and so things are kind of coming around because uh, there's a number... There's the Democracy at Work organization. That's who published this, and that's his, his, his nonprofit, and a lot of other movements towards that because you know in his framework there's a lot of different economic hierarchies throughout history you have the king uh, subject and monarchy you have the lord serf and feudalism and you have master slave and slavery these are all economic relationships and one one group uh subordinates to another and and the latest is just employer employee Right. That's just just the latest. It's not divine. It's not um, something that always existed or was assumed. And so the problem then that that is what leads to further inequalities on the macro level. Right. Is is that power differential at, at the start. And so if you can abolish that distinction for the same reasons you would abolish all the others, the serf, lord, slave, master, et cetera, which is what cooperatives do, then you have achieved some degree of decentralized power. Now, that's what's fascinating. Probably in all my reading in the last couple of years on socialism is how much similarity they have towards <laughs> libertarians, anarchists, and classical liberals. This, the concerns are the same. It's like you, you read it and there's some things that it's like Murray Rothbard or it's John Locke. I mean, you know, we're trained to constantly react and to say that we we erect these walls that we really don't have anything in common. We're not trying to achieve the same goals. But decentralized power is kind of behind that. The the only real group and philosophies that aren't behind decentralized power on an, on both an economic and a political level uh, is anarcho-capitalist and neoliberal Milton Friedman style economists. Oh well, and and your your center left technocrats like me, right? Well, I don't know. I won't speak for you, but um... <laughs> no, no I, I'm joking. But there there is a sense in which the there it looks to me like there's a there's a pretty strong anti-establishment movement on the on the fairly far left and the far right in economic terms, both both pretty upset with. The, the, with the political and economic establishment, you know, that we've had since, you know, the 1950s or so. Yeah, well, I mean, and, and it's just fascinating, you know, the term libertarian was for over 100 years and in every language and country, it meant socialism, anti-state socialism. Only in the, in the World War II era did it become known as a free market right-wing pro-capitalism, you know? So, I mean, that's what you read the literature in the 1800s and, and, sonat, and libertarianism is literally synonymous with socialism, you know, and, and anarchism. And it's just sort of funny because I, like, no one's ever told me that. And like, 
does no, nobody else notice this? <laughs> you know, like how, do, how does this work? So anyway, uh, yeah, that's, that's uh, that book. And he has another one, Understanding Marxism, but I haven't read that. So, but I'll, I want to pick that up too. All right. So uh, my one question here, wait, maybe I already asked it. My, my second question, if I, uh, if I already asked one. You can, you're the host. Yes. Have you read some of the more uh, philosophical um, analytic Marxist folks like Jerry Cohn or um, now I can't, I can't come up with the other names. I mean, Bowles has sometimes been in this category, Samuel Bowles, but he's more of a, of a, of a heterodox economist, I think more of the time, but, but, uh, but the why not socialism book by Cohen that recently came out, is that a, a very different book? Have you looked at that one? I've skimmed that. I actually haven't read that one yet. Okay. So, um, but yeah, I, I've been trying to read the primary sources first. So I've been reading a sure. ton of Marx. I read, you know, some readers of Marx and religion and of course, capital and all these other things, but no, so I can't, I can't really locate those as much, you know, cause there's a lot of, there's Fabian collectivists, there's the guilt socialists, there's all kinds of different groups still alive today, you know, that are, yeah. you know, this is just, yeah, and, and to be fair, I've never read uh, much about folks who are arguing in any practical terms about what a socialist economy should look like. I've only read the literature of the, the, the philosophical literature on egalitarianism, right, which, okay. is, where, which yeah. is where some of these socialist philosophers would fall. And so then they're making arguments primarily about, about ethics and distributive justice. And it tends to be pretty rarefied and technical in, in, in philosophical terms, you know, and they're responding to Rawls and they're responding to Nozick and they're building their own ethical principles and whatnot. But very little of it has to do with, like, how would you build this world? See, that's, that's the thing is that like in, in Michael Harrington and in Richard Wolff's work, they're very aware that socialism for ever since it really got off the ground has been dragged down by theory. And it hasn't, it's like embarrassing. And they know that and they talk about it. It's like, if you want to find the best critiques of socialism, read advocates of socialism. That's, that's what I would say. Okay. They're much more penetrating. They're, they're, they're more honest. And, and you're going to find a lot more things there than from your mainstream neoliberal neoclassical economist or whatever. So what, one other thing just to mention quick before going on uh, in this book also, I found interesting is just how the cooperative movement also transforms the relationship of the state. And because the crony capitalism is a huge problem and, you know, is featured in Michael Munger's interview with, uh, what's his name? Russ uh, Roberts. Russ Roberts, yeah. And I, I, I think crony capitalism could be argued as more of the rule than the exception historically and then today. But like, if you, if you don't have monopolies of economic power, if you don't have the massive you know, wealthy CEOs that simply own things that's that that aren't they're they're not they're not part of the employee base. I mean, there's obviously a very big distinction there. They're not they are the employer. If you don't have you sort of undermine crony capitalism in a way. Cooperatives undermine crony capitalism because there's no longer a concentration of power to try to, to start pulling levers, whether that's legislation, not that it doesn't exist, not that there's not advocacy, not that there's not power of man managers of of employee-owned firms, whatever they are, but because it's it's pre-distributed, mm -hmm. uh, you've already kind of complexified and and made created more obstacles for uh, capture of the state, of a private capture of the state. It's much more easier if there's just a couple people who own everything, right, and they just yeah. buy people out. I 
I, I'm initially skeptical of your assertion based on my my understanding of the way corporatist economies with cooperation between labor unions and industries and government have worked in Europe. But I I don't know enough to formulate a good challenge. Only mild skepticism. Sure, yeah. and I'm not I'm not I'm not saying I I totally buy all that, but that's just an interesting thing I read. Yeah. Um, because the Marxists seek the the absolution and the in the dissolution of the state as well, um, though they haven't been successful, basically at all. All right. Hey, this is good. This is you're definitely pushing me into books that I have not had on my radar. With that, let me go to I guess this is number five for me, and I think this one I'll go with the book I've already mentioned by T. M. Scanlon. Why does inequality matter? So this is this is my recommendation for for folks who don't mind reading really dense analytic philosophy. That's a small group, I know, but if you're that person and you want to think really carefully about questions about inequality and poverty and what kind of obligations, ethical obligations um, we might have as a society or individuals, Scanlon's book is both recent, um, fairly comprehensive and, and quite good. He ends up falling down in a place that's sort of like a moderate John Rawls. So he ends up at one point in the book uh, concluding basically what Rawls concludes in a theory of justice, but he comes at it from different philosophical premises. He thinks they're stronger. I think they're probably stronger as well than, than Rawls's case, but that's where he lands. He also ends up arguing basically that, that, that inequality in and of itself isn't a problem, but there are a whole lot of causes of inequality that are a problem. There's, um, there's problems of power, political power and economic power that can cause inequality that are a real issue. And, and that poverty is a real problem morally. And that it's, it's all of these, these things that, that, can, that can be causally attached to inequality that end up being uh, problems of distributive justice. Um, and so he's, he's not a raging egalitarian, but he's definitely an egalitarian. And I think he has particularly good insights on property rights and, and taxation and some other issues that are that are really at the heart of questions about redistribution for from an economic policy perspective. But of course, he's coming at it as a philosopher who's been studying this stuff for forever. He's really kind of a senior uh, statesman in the political philosophy world, and and this book really shows his his long study of these questions. So I I learned a ton. This is one of these books I had to read really slowly. And I just I just learned a lot just by digging into all the footnotes and, and going through it bit by bit. I have a question for you on that. So since you're all studying the distributive stuff on the subject of inequality, books like these and others, they sort of say, OK, inequality is a problem. We should deal with it. Some people go further and then say, oh, here's what we should do, you know, like Piketty and others, we, a global progressive tax or whatever. Um, but all of these things, they they sort of grant the system that creates inequalities, and then they try to mitigate those inequalities on top and on the back end. You know, they'll do the progressive tax, they'll do the wealth tax, they'll do these other things. Mm. Something that, and then of course you have the discussion of what what is it an acceptable level of inequality or what is a toxic level of inequality. And on that, I just I, I think about marginal analysis. I think about how the reason why um putting wealth towards those who need it most is because of marginal utility like $20 will go a lot further for the poor than it will for 
you know, the middle class. Inflation hurts the poor more. The middle class can afford a 10% increase in milk and bread, but the poor cannot. And so it's like, what? why wouldn't your, the, the average economist who doesn't really care about inequality and its problems, why wouldn't they care purely on the basis that, you know, it, clearly it would be better if Jeff Bezos would not buy another yacht, a $200 million yacht. It would be, there would be a, there'd be better marginal utility results. People would be better off. They could, they could have more economic growth on the aggregate if that money was given towards Amazon employees, for example. You know what I mean? Like it's, it seems so obvious that, that the billions of the luxury and, and the elite class are not working. They're not actually helping the economy as much as if those funds were distributed, so-called, to those who can do more with them in their lives, get more utility out of them. I, that, that's a fair question, and and I'm gonna I'm gonna give you two answers. So you're you're presuming that the economist in question is actually a utilitarian. First off, now economists do tend to be utilitarians, with a, with a real important caveat that uh, ethical utilitarians often have to accept that we can do interpersonal utility comparisons, and economists usually don't. So an economist could say that we don't actually know that a middle-class person is gonna gain more than Bill Gates from that marginal dollar. Now, it's really hard to make the argument that you know, $100 isn't gonna mean more for the person you know, who's living on 10,000 or $20,000 a year than it is for someone living on a million a year. Uh, but, but just as a, as a matter of theory, that's, that's the first bit. And then, and then the second place that economists will usually go is to say that that redistribution is very costly. So the redistribution is not only costly ethically perhaps, if you have a strong view of property rights, but it's also costly in terms of efficiency. There's less growth, less wealth creation, um, changed incentive, incentives, inefficient government that, that pulls out you know, a big chunk through, through sheer wastefulness. And, and you get sort of a, a kind of pragmatic utilitarian case that the redistribution itself just isn't gonna get you there. But I think the, um, the argument is fair. And it's just worth noting though, from the outset that a lot of egalitarians are not utilitarians. So some famous egalitarians are utilitarian, right? And John Stuart Mill, maybe the most famous, of course, um, and modern, modern thinkers that are utilitarians like Peter Singer um, also often end up being egalitarian. So um, Peter Singer very famously says that rich people have an obligation to give away large amounts of their wealth because it would, it would help other people so much more, the people who are poor around the world. A lot of the egalitarian literature, though, is does assume uh, a liberal democratic market order. A lot of the egalitarian literature is, is liberal in, this, in the tradition of John Rawls uh, or um, you know, Milton Friedman also of course fits into that liberal, liberal camp in that they're individualist, but, but brings in sort of non-utilitarian reasons for, for egalitarianism. And they often have something to do with, with democracy or, um, or human dignity and that these that our respect for human dignity requires the redistribution or something like that. So people come at this from a lot of different ways. And, and there's lots of really, I, I think really very good arguments on both sides of these big questions because people think about these things using a lot of different lenses. That was a little bit of a rambling answer, but I tried to kind of signpost a few different things there. No, that's, that's good. I, I think uh, listeners would like that better than just a, a litany of summaries of books. So yeah. 
<laughs> At least maybe. Well, I, I think it's probably worth having um, a podcast episode or two sort of digging into some of these questions that mm -hmm. I've been swimming in for the whole semester. And I'll, I'll need to put that on my, on my to-do list. I can't remember where we are. Um... Well, I have one left on my list, but certainly I think it's your turn because I just recommended Scanlon. Okay, so the making of a democratic economy, building prosperity for the many, not just for the few, by Marjorie Kelly and Ted Howard of the Democracy Collaborative. So here is mostly a popular volume uh, that that does some of the things I talked about before. It's you have this movement towards okay, if capitalism is producing uh, results we don't like, let's do something about it. Let's create an alternative and not just depend on legislation and politics and et cetera. So I could really appreciate that. And the book is oriented around principles of a democratic or solidarity economy. And so you have the principle of community, inclusion, place, good work, democratic ownership, sustainability, and ethical finance. And so each one looks at a different case study, a different firm or a different project or a different business or whatever. And uh, a lot of them are, are about cooperatives and, and things like that. But there was a really good chapter there that was interesting for me living here in Rapid City, South Dakota, the second chapter on um, the principle of community, because it focused on Nick Tilson and the work behind and of the NDN Collective, which is headquartered here. And I, I drive by it almost every day. And so it's like, oh, I, I didn't really know what it was. And now here's a chapter on it in this book. So, and just the things that people today could learn from indigenous communities. I mean, I mean, there's a lot of obvious things like, hey, don't destroy the biosphere. You know, that's a great idea. <laughs> yeah, no, but, uh, or, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of things there, but, um, you know, growing up around Indian reservations, it's just so depressing. It's the highest, you know, Pine Ridge, the poorest county in the country is just a, few, a couple hours away. Uh, they have the highest teenage suicide rate, I think, in the world. And um, I've knew some people in college, they grew up there. Learning about the positive work that's being done there, uh, building sustainable homes and mm -hmm. communities, the Thunderhead project was one of them is is really encouraging and uh so i really enjoyed that there was another chapter that was like way sort of crazy for me it was on the subtitle is the federal reserve's power to finance ecological transition like you won't find a you won't find a bigger critic of the fed than me um and so they're basically like yeah let's just do quantitative easing to save the planet like on the one hand it's like oh this is insane on the other hand it's like, well, crazier things have happened. I mean, look at what, <laughs> look at what the Fed is already doing, you know, in terms of buying out all these private assets and the balance sheet going through the roof in the last year again. So it's like, yeah, I don't, I'm not sure that's a good idea, but that, that was an interesting chapter. And but these other ones are mostly like uh, worker-owned, you know, uh, nursing homes or or medical facilities that are function as anchor institutions. They're not just because they're not based on raw profit capitalist models, people jobs don't just disappear, right? And, and people are taken care of because that's the difference in priorities. You, you, when you don't have one person who's just owns a bunch of firms with a bunch of employees and trying to make a profit, they don't just allocate capital to another place. They don't just move their factory to another place and everyone's out of a job too bad. 
it's a very different way of decision making. It's a different way of sustainability, and it's helped a lot of, especially poor communities. It's not just something. It's not just something for the luxurious class. It's born out of you know these grassroots movements and and problems. So, yeah, it was really enjoyable. I love this book. I recommended it to others, and you know the basic premise is again, if you know the if the government should be decentralized in power, why do we not think that way in terms of the economy, in terms of how it should be structured? And framed, and here are ways to do that on a on a on a local level. So I'll have to dig into some of these readings more. I've always thought of the the problem with firms disregarding large swaths of workers, closing down plants, and moving overseas. I've always thought of the problem less in terms of the power of the executives, and more in terms of the competitive markets. So that it's the it's it's the more competitive markets where where industries and firms are forced to engage in whatever they need to do in order to stay in business or meet what, whatever their competitors are doing. And it's in the less competitive markets where CEOs or collectives or others are able to, to shield their employees from shocks and these other kinds of things. Now, that's probably just like a rule of thumb on my part. I think of, I think of the, there, there being less individual agency and less um, power of the executives as being kind of a causal factor in these sorts of things than I do the structure of the firm itself. Well, and that's that's something these these books definitely address, but they would just go further than probably people like you and just, you know they'd just say, well, yeah, this is the way capitalism works. It needs to be abolished, you know, problem solved, move on. So yeah, that, that's somewhat too sweeping for me. Right, right. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, in, it, in, in a lot of cases, it's pretty radical, but- The details matter. Um, and and I, I look forward to sort of thinking more about this cooperative stuff as well. How many books do you have left on your list? I have one left on mine. I just have two. All right. Well, I, I do actually have a fiction recommendation as well. So that I can tag okay. my list with that. But let me let me offer my last nonfiction um, recommendation. And that is a book that I picked up through sheer divine inspiration. I love it. I love it when that happens. Yeah. So a colleague of mine who's far more famous than I am, Jamie Smith over at Calvin, has has said he believes, I think it was him, but said he believes that the Holy Spirit works by putting books in his life randomly. And, and if there ever was such a movement, it was this one. Um, I was just walking through the book tables at the ASSA meetings last January, and I found Jonathan Rothwell's A Republic, or Republic of Equals, A Manifesto for a Just Society. It was not on my radar in, for any other reason, but it has a nice cover. It ended up hitting a lot of the themes that I was thinking about at the time. So I, I gave up my lunch and just used my lunch money to buy this book. Um, and no, I'm not so poorly paid that I actually need to choose between books and food. Don't worry, people. Send donations to the Association money. of Christian Economists. <laughs> Don't send them to me. But that's how it worked on this day. So I picked up Jonathan Ruffalo's book, and, and he is neither a conservative or a liberal in any sense that I can easily identify. He's fairly moderate in a lot of ways, but he's definitely a, a public policy scholar and a statistician. And he does a couple of things that I really appreciated. One was to talk about the ways in which inequality is driven by, by rent seeking within professions, particularly in healthcare and some other sort of high paid professional fields in ways that, that I'm, I'm, I'm embarrassed to say as a labor economist, I was not up to date on the literature on this stuff, but there's really good evidence that, that doctors are paid what they're paid, not just because medical school is expensive, not just because they're highly specialized, but because of really substantial market power. 
and, and he goes through lots of other fields as well. He goes through law um, and some other professional fields and shows that there's a really substantial amount of the inequality between say the 20th and the 80th percentiles that is due to, to rent seeking at the professional level. Uh, he also does a really nice job responding to, as if we need this responded to anymore, but responding to the bell curve, uh, Charles Murray kind of kind of literature about race and IQ and the kind of deterministic view of, of inequality that says that some folks are just always going to be limited in what they can achieve and other people aren't. And so some of this inequality is due to this underlying ability. Um, he shows that what we think of as ability is far more malleable than is usually assumed in these studies. Um, I don't know the literature on IQ well enough to know for sure. I'd like to evaluate all of it, but he makes, he makes a very strong case that there's more possibility for economic mobility than we often see in the data because of the way we're defining a lot of the, a lot of the things that we're trying to measure and the assumptions we make about, um, about test scores and some other kinds of things. So in that sense, it's a very optimistic book. He argues that there's ways for us to structure the economy to create more opportunity for the folks that often have, that are often shut out of the economy um, because of education and geography and other kinds of things. And, um, and it's not just a, we need to redistribute wealth. It's that we just need to, we actually just need to structure law and labor markets and education and some other things differently in order to create a world in which economic opportunity and mobility is a real option for everyone. Um, so again, very technocratic, very detailed, very public policy oriented, but with a really heavy view of um, sort of wide angle view toward um, creating a just society, which is right in my sweet spot. Cool. All right. I don't really have any questions on that one. I did realize that I subconsciously, I think, save the best for last. That's great. So, and that's good because I had, I have no idea how to answer your question about the best of 2020. <laughs> so maybe this is helping. Okay. So Gary Dorian, social democracy in the making and religious roots of European socialism. There we go. This was an incredible book. The title is sort of boring to me. I didn't expect much of it. Uh, the author is a um, someone I've never read. He's a ethicist and seminary professor at Union. I think he's actually the Reinhold Niebuhr professor or whatever. This is published by Yale in this last year, and I uh, should be reviewing it for a journal. So this was a big one, like over 550 pages. There's kind of two reactions or two things that sort of shaped the way I read it or what my experience was. The first was it was overwhelming in its level of detail. And I'd say 98 to 99% of all of it is things that are brand new to me. Mm -hmm. And that was intense and unexpected, uh, having reading other things in this subject, but no one has ever told this story in, in this way. I just, I'm just not aware of it. It's just, it's all new. I mean, there's some people I heard of, like, you know, Paul Tillich or, or Barth or a couple others in the 1800s. And then the second is it's incredibly well-written. It's, it's, it's very academic, but it's so beautifully written that I could recommend chapters to uh, undergraduates, no problem. And I, I would trust that they understand it. What Doreen is doing is he is looking at the response of Christians and churches to industrial capitalism, primarily in the 1800s and primarily in Great Britain and Germany. And not just any response to industrial capitalism, but he's looking at anti-capitalist responses to capitalism by Christians, both religious, theological, 
and political. So policy and political parties. Mm -hmm. And both was very fascinating. There's some parts I didn't care about. I, I just, my eyes roll over when people talk about who won elections. I just don't care. I don't care about the seats or the votes. It's just boring to me. <laughs> he, the level of detail he he writes and he, he just really knew these people better than I felt like they knew themselves. Like just so much research into all these books. And he's, you know, very experienced scholar. And this is the first of a second volume. This is not the end. So he's going to follow this up with something. But I thought it was uh, an incredible book. Very fun to read. If you want to talk about the origins of socialism and Christian socialism, you have to read this book. There are so many different varieties and associations and movements. You know, there's guild socialism and, and syndicalist and, and a number of different things. So it's, it's just fascinating to see how Christians dealt with these different situations, how they dealt with the Nazism in the early 20th century, how they dealt with different labor movements, how they how they they talked about the kingdom of god and how that was shaped by the economics of the time and how they in in his portrayal is brutally honest like he just lays out there's nothing there's nothing utopian about this whatsoever in any of his portrayal he's quite critical even though he's hopeful about this and is generally you know, arguing. It, it, it actually doesn't really argue for social democracy. He really doesn't. He's just the book is best described as a a collection of biographies. That's what it really is, um, divided up into six chapters, sort of by loose topic and, and chronology. So I'm just going to stop there. What questions do you have? You know, the, the the biggest question that comes to mind is probably one he doesn't answer, but it's one that's always struck me that the U.S. does not have a Christian social democratic tradition. Why? What is it about this movement that's been so influential in Europe didn't make sense in the U.S.? Well, is it is it that we don't have a parliamentary system? I mean, what's the well? There's interesting responses to that. I mean, first of all, the premise isn't quite right. There is actually there's a book called The S Word, um, and it's on the history of socialism in the founding fathers. Okay, and in all of all of that, they, they didn't really use the term, and it wasn't right. quite as organized as in Europe. However, the same ideas are there, and they're very prominent. And there's a chapter on a. Uh, a really good book, but I couldn't recommend it because somebody on the screen wouldn't allow me to recommend something before two years. Yeah. You know, there's someone, there's a real tyrant in charge around here somewhere. I know. I know. We need to do something about that, but um, called The Citizen's Share. Uh and that has a one or two chapters on socialist thinking in uh, the Founding Fathers as well. And that was very, very fascinating in, in John Adams and all those people. So, Well, since you've dropped the title, who's the author of that one? That's edited by three people, Joseph Blasey, Richard Freeman, Douglas Cruz. Cruz and Blasey, I know, have edited and written a lot of books on cooperatives. That's kind of their space. Yeah, it's, and the subtitle is Reducing Inequality in the 21st Century. So it's... Uh, all right, you snuck that one in. It will go in the show notes along with the rest of them. <clears throat> Sweet. So anyway, to your question, I think, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I don't, actually don't know how to answer it very well other than to say that the extremities of industrial capitalism in Great Britain are felt a lot more than America. Yeah. I mean, the coal factories, the abuse of, of people, the, the enclosure movement, kick, kicking out the serfs, you're on your own. I mean, so there's all the more reason for a more passionate look at alternatives and developing something. Germany, I, I don't know. And, and Germany's versions of socialism have always been stained by imperialism and nationalism, no matter what. But yeah, I mean, in, in the interaction with Marx is always fascinating too, how Christians did with Marx. And so anyway, yeah, I think that's, um, that's 
it's it's quite a book and I look forward to the second. All right. So I think, are we both through with our list? You've said your favorite book of the year was this last one, correct? Yes. All right. I, I'm going to also pick a favorite and I'm going to, again, break all the rules and I'm going to pick a favorite that isn't from my list. That is, that is just going to be a gratuitous abuse of power. I'm going to say my favorite book of 2020 was Digital Life Together, The Challenge of Technology for Christian Schools. <laughs> Written by who? Written by, by David Smith, an excellent education scholar at Calvin University, Kara Sevensma, Marge Terpstra, and a nobody named Stephen McMullen huh. uh, over at Hope College. It's, it's, I think, just an excellent look at the way technology is being used in the K-12 classrooms. Mm. Um, what it means for pedagogy, what it means for school culture, what it means for the Christian mission of schools, just just rich, rich data that they brought to bear uh, on this question that's that's really important in the education world right now. Is there anything on virtual reality in there? You know, we don't. And that's largely, I mean, no. sorry, the authors don't um, don't do anything with with VR. and and partly that's because we, we we base it really heavily on observations in the what's being used in the schools and interviews. And there just isn't, there isn't anything that we saw that I remember uh, anybody using virtual reality in. Well, nobody's using it yet, but I, I just have a feeling that technology has just been developed for, for that in the last two years, like really, really well. Um, the hardware, NVIDIA and other companies, and I think it's, it's about ready to explode. Um, but I, I think you're definitely right. As, as a whole medium, I think virtual reality is going gonna, is gonna to be interesting. And I just couldn't predict at this moment where it's going to be the most influential obviously video games but i'm not yeah. sure where else my son loves virtual loves the cheap google vr youtube things where you can put on some cheap goggles and then go down a roller coaster and i'm just waiting to see what is the second most awesome use of vr other than online roller coasters well i, I was always just thinking like like a history course like history of yeah Chinese or Western civilization or Indian civilization and, and just being there, you know, like it, it, I think that would be awesome. But so, well, I need to abuse some power too. You can't right, just do, do that. Um, Jesus, Jesus and John Wayne. That's my other book. Oh, I, you know what? And, and I would not prevent you from bringing that one up for a whole lot of reasons. Tell us about it then. It's called Jesus and John Wayne, how white evangelicals corrupted a faith and fractured a nation. Oh my, uh, by Christian. That's a title that was written by a marketing department. Uh, <laughs> yeah, for sure. I shouldn't say that. Kristen's my friend. She might have written the title. I don't know. Yeah, well, she. I remember she had said something. She was uh, debating the the subtitle or something. But anyway, so she is a. Uh, her her father was my advisor in college, Wayne Cobus, and my favorite professor. Oh, cool. And uh, I didn't know that until like halfway through the book. It's like, oh, it's the same name there or something. So anyway, but uh, this is a pretty uh, powerful book. It does a couple different things. On the one hand, it's it's sort of dem it sort of demonstrates that. The election of Donald Trump was, as she puts it, one of the most openly immoral presidents in U.S. history. I think I think that's probably a historical fact, opinion. I don't know. I mean, I generally would probably see it that way too. What that 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 choice and that support was not provided by evangelicals in America, like like holding your nose voting. It was enthusiastic. And that enthusiasm, which we're witnessing right now in the last two weeks in Washington D.C., is there still Trump? rallies going on after the election by prominent evangelicals, there's good reasons for that. And so she traces, she starts in the early 20th century, late 1900, late 1800s, and gets into the present day, sort of tracking how this tough guy mentality 
and this these gender stereotypes and toxic masculinity, to use a more contemporary term, has been there all along. And it terminates in various results, and it has. And, and so on the other hand, she's kind of doing a feminist uh, critique, cultural critique. She's looking at how misogyny and patriarchy that's been institutionalized in politics and in, and in religion and in traditions and in books and culture is, is behind the kind of cultural milieu that we currently experience. And her last chapter was very powerful. It, was, uh, it chronicled just this huge list of kind of where this goes, where all these crazy books written in the 1950s and 60s on womanhood and manhood and uh, all of this this macho attitude, where it actually goes, which is sexual abuse in churches. There's a massive list that we, we try to yeah. forget these names, uh, erase them from our consciences. And of course, I describe myself as a, as a post-evangelical, so I'm not really a part of this anymore, but I can definitely relate. And I, I wrote a book on this myself on post-evangelicalism and and why there's that type of of collapse happening so it was uh, it's very compressed and there's some details i would have liked both jessica was reading it still and and myself like how did the this these attitudes these um about about gender become so integrated into the identity of American evangelicalism to begin with. So that is an explanation you'll have to find, I guess, on other books and, and such. But, but it's a really well-written, sweeping narrative about how this genderized culture and masculine culture in particular uh, has, has done such incredible damage. I'm glad you picked that. The book has been sitting in my house, both in physical form and as an audiobook. And because Kristen is a friend of ours and my wife has been reading it and I've read part of it, but I haven't I haven't gotten through it yet. And my impression though has been that she just did such a nice job with the history, that it's it's heavy on on details and history and relatively low on polemics. And and the response to the book has been really good, I think, as a result of just telling the story of the evangelical church in the post-war period on issues of gender. And, and what a great service for a scholar like Kristen, I think, who, who understands the, the world of, of conservative Protestant Christianity, in part because she's been in it her whole life. Yeah, and uh, it's it's not a um, for a lot of people it's not an easy pill to swallow, but it just makes a lot of sense. And um, you know, Beth Moore even recommended it on Twitter is probably her the most important book other people should read for 2021. It was definitely um, one of the best, probably the top top five books I read completely in in 2020, and so I felt it merited that. Well, we've gotten through our list. I think you have. Are you? I'm done. You're yep. done. The only other book I was going to recommend was I was going to recommend Brandon Sanderson's Stormlight Archives. He's a, if you're interested in, in, in possibly long fantasy series, he's on book four. And, and this is one of these books that I will only read on Kindle because I don't have to hold the physically large book then. I can just flip through it electronically. Uh, without ever having to exercise my muscles. But it has been a great joy. I won't get into the details because it's fiction. You can read about it. Suffice it to say, that's been my sabbatical escape recently. Well, I, I don't want to continue this adding of books, but there's another book I should mention. There's always another book. I, I know. I'll, I'll stop here. I'll stop here. <laughs> this is the best book I read in 2020. All right. Is Humanizing the Economy 
uh, by John Rostakis. That was published in 2010, so I couldn't make it part of the list. Oh, yeah. Wow, that's ancient. Yeah, yeah, I know. 2010. So anyway, that's the best book I read that's probably appropriate for this podcast, but a little bit earlier. So all right, we'll add that. Hey, any final words? I'll put, of course, I'll put all of these books in the show notes with links to Amazon so that folks who were trying to scribble things down along the way won't have to. They can just go and and find the links and get the longer descriptions. Anything you'd like to end with, Jamin, before we call it a day? I don't think so. No, I mean, it's yeah, it's straightforward enough. We're just geeking out here. Indeed. And that is what podcasts are good for. Uh, it's just this thing. I'll just say that, of course, reading books is a rare pleasure, finding the time to sit down and read. Read something from someone who knows some question or some issue way better than I do. And and obviously, that's a joy that you've experienced this year as well. So So here's me raising my metaphorical glass to everyone who's written a really excellent book this year and shared it with us. You're probably not going to get rich, not with the kind of books we're talking about here, although Brandon Sanderson with his, with his fiction might be making good money. But still, uh, what an excellent service. Yeah. That is our show for today. Again, I am Stephen McMullen of Hope College and editor of the journal Faith and Economics. If you have any comments or questions, I would love to hear from you. You can always email me at podcast at christianeconomist.org. Remember to subscribe or follow us so you can see new episodes as we release them and to rate us on Apple Podcasts so that other people can find this show. For those interested in supporting the show, we welcome monetary donations. Just go to anchor.fm slash faithful economy and click on the button that says support. 100% of donations go toward the programming of the Association of Christian Economists. No one associated with ACE is paid a dime, and donations are all tax deductible. Faithful Economy is a program of the Association of Christian Economists and the journal Faith and Economics. You can find out more about the association and the journal at christianeconomists.org, and you can follow us on Facebook and LinkedIn.